Welcome to the What We Talked About in Class podcast, brought to you from the campus of Wayne Community College in Goldsboro, North Carolina, sponsored by the Foundation of Wayne Community College. three history and managements i don't have the projector going but you're going to get the same experience that the online students are going to get so but that's not a problem i will talk this out and write down a few things if uh if if need be and if uh i will report this and make sure we can see if we can get some maintenance here working on this between now and thursday so and i will do a recap of this on thursday and if you still don't feel good about it we'll talk on thursday I could bump the assignment a little bit just to, uh, we'll talk about that though. So, all right. So the learning outcomes, remember each chapter we started out talking about learning outcomes. I'm just going to describe those to you. Um, describe management in the ancient world. The idea of management is not a new thing. It's been around for quite a while. The second one is how did the Italian Renaissance affect the progression of management theory? Third one is how did the industrial revolution affect the progression of management theory? Mm. Number four, how did Frederick Taylor influence management theory and how did efficiency in management affect current management theory? Number five, how do bureaucratic and administrative management complement scientific management? Um, number six, how did Elton Mayo influence management theory and how did the human relations movement affect current management theory? And then the last learning outcome is how did contingency and system management transform management thought? So, I know this is a lot easier if you have something to look at because you're used to that, but we're going to talk about these one by one. So, there's a couple early contributors. There were seven on my list. If you look in the chapter reading for chapter three, you'll see these, these uh, actual contributors spelled out. The first one is the Sumerians. The Sumerians, it's uh, S-U-M-E-R-I-A-N-S. That's S-U-M-E-R-I-A-N-S. A-N-S, the Sumerians. Their contribution was writing and trays. They um, developed a very rudimentary uh, writing style and a way to, this was, this was such a big thing though. I mean, before we had a formalized writing system, uh, we had to just remember things. We didn't have a way to keep accounting or do things uh, in a systemized way. But once we developed a writing system, it became formalized and so much easier for us to transact. Then we get to Hammurabi, which is spelled H-A-M-M-H-A-M-M-U-R-A-B-I. Once again, that's H-A-M-M-U-R-A-B-I. And Hammurabi wrote something called uh, Hammurabi's Code. I don't know if you've heard of this before. Um, you may or may not have heard of Hammurabi's Code, but you've probably uh, heard of some, th some things that he uh, came about with, oh, oh, I don't, know if, I don't know, I touched something, but it's not, I don't know, the connection is being weird, so, but let's see if I can change this input real quick, I don't know, it says computer, computer, I don't know. If you're listening to this, we're uh, experiencing some technical difficulties. That's okay. Anyway, I will have them take a look at it, maintenance, because that's the we need to have that up and running. Do you want me to leave it all over and just turn it off? 
you prefer the blue screen or just nothing? Any preference? No preference? You can pretend like something's here. We could visualize. Yeah. So going back to Hammurabi real quick. Hammurabi developed something called Hammurabi's Code. This code was developed between 1810 and 1750 BC. And this was ancient Babylon. It's a listing of 282 laws that regulated conduct on a wide variety of behaviors, including business dealings, personal behavior, interpersonal relations and punishments. Law 104 was one of the first instances of accounting and the need for formal rules regarding uh, owners and managers. Um, and so uh, Hammurabi's code talked about, like if you stole something, you would have you know, your hand taken, that type of thing. It was uh, uh, eye for an eye, that type of uh, very uh, strict punishments for violations. And it was just a way, but the, the writing with Hammurabi's code was basically a way to form a society in an in a organized way. Really, really uh, foundational, important. Um, the next one on the list, this is, a, this is a big one, Nebuchadnezzar. The spelling of Nebuchadnezzar, N-E-B-U-C-H-N-E-B-U-C-H-A-D-N-E-Z-Z-A-R, -E -E Nebuchadnezzar. That's what, one more time. N-E-B-U-C-H. A-D-N-E-Z-Z-R. Nebuchadnezzar uh, came up with this idea of incentives that uh, we want to make people more motivated. We want to uh, give people a reason to perform. And so he, he's the guy that came up with the actual paycheck, not an actual check that you give people, but uh, their first type of compensation. <laughs> and so, you know, back then I'm sure you got some type of copper or you know maybe a piece of silver depending on what you did uh, some type of uh, payment though and then we get to the ancient Egyptians the Egyptians uh, really kind of built on these ideas and actually came up with the division of labor coordination and span of control and we'll talk about what span of control is uh, a little bit later it has to do with I'm just I can say it basically within a hierarchy managers have a certain amount of people they're responsible for. For example, if you were working on the pyramids and your responsibility was to develop mortar, there would be a crew leader that would, hey, I've, this is Lynn. Lynn, have you, were able to get to the quiz yet? No, I can go with Laura or, okay. This is Laura, everybody, in case you haven't met Laura. Laura is our administrative assistant and she is Super helpful if you ever need anything at all. Yes, you had a question? Yeah, I was just going to say, what were you saying about the Egyptians? Okay, so, yeah, if um, they had a crew of people that were making mortar to build something with, there might be a crew leader that supervised 20, 50, 100 people in a certain area to have an accountability of what was supposed to get done. The Egyptians are also known, though, for being brutal. I mean, they, they, were, they had slave labor and... Uh, they did not take good care of the people in their under their rule. Um, and they are known for the division of labor, meaning that somebody was a brick maker, somebody was a mortar maker, somebody was a uh, food service. You know, there was a bunch of different. Uh, that's fine. Yeah, no problem at all. Um, and then 
the next person after that or, or contributor after that was Sun Tzu. Anybody ever heard of the name Sun Tzu? Art of War, absolutely. So Art of War is a business book today, but for centuries it's been used as a military tactics book. Why would you think it's interesting to use a military tactics book as a business book? Something in business is kind of like war. It's very much tactical. Um, Sun Tzu like, talked about very philosophical uh, and basically the great thing about the art of war is it's kind of counterintuitive to full like full all-out warfare. Meaning that in Sun Tzu's opinion, you wouldn't just go attack your enemy. That, you, that's, the, that's the wrong thing to do. What you would do is you would build up your resources and slowly but surely cut off the resources of your enemy. You would slowly but surely like uh, surround your enemy, like in a, but you'd never attack them directly. It's all about indirect, you know, like it's all about like uh, starving them out. Um, it's very much like guerrilla warfare. That's what's what Sun Tzu is about. And when you come to uh, business, modern day business, the, some of the same things apply. You can go on full on attack your opponent, but you're going to spend a lot of money, a lot of time, and a lot of resources doing that. Whereas if you could entrench yourself, build yourself up to where you're really strong, and then you get to a point where your opponent can attack you. In fact, there's a great example of this. I uh, get everything taken care of? Okay, cool. Um, there's a great example of this in the movie The Founder. Has anybody seen that about McDonald's? Yep. Okay, great example of this where and you'll know this uh, example, Ray Kroc is in business with the McDonald's brothers and he really wants to control the whole company, but they own the company. So what he does, instead of fighting them, he starts a separate company, builds that up so big to the point where they can't attack him legally because it would drown them in legal bills they couldn't afford to pay. So he definitely did an art of war, didn't he, did he not? And he got to the point where he owned a, a, a multi-state, uh, federal or national company that they couldn't uh, couldn't fight against because they were a local small company. And so, wow, it, it was really a great lesson in art of war because he did it so indirectly. And by the time they caught on to what he was doing, it was already too late. All right, so Sun Tzu, I'm sure we'll talk more about him in the coming weeks. Uh, the Han Dynasty, which was... 206 BC to 220 AD, so about a 400-year span there. Um, they developed development of bureaucracy. So what is bureaucracy? The Han Dynasty, once again, is 206 BC to 220 AD. Development of bureaucracy is a process by which we go through to get things done. And we do it in a way, the reason why we have bureaucracy to begin with is to try to avoid errors. As an example, if we have a committee, a subcommittee, and that committee comes to a determination through votes and through discussion, they can bring it to a larger committee to say that this has already been through a subcommittee, it's been vetted, what do you guys now think? And then they can vote on it and decide, and then they could you know, put it out for a study beyond that. So there's all kinds of bureaucracy there, but the thinking is, is that if we have multiple levels to go through, that it will weed out bad choices and only let the cream rise to the top. That's the reason for bureaucracy. The problem is, is that sometimes the cream that actually needs to happen gets stopped due to political things and 
It's just, uh, it can be problematic. Then the next one, the ancient Greeks, Greeks talked about division of labor, how um, one person should do one thing instead of trying to be multiple, uh, multiple, I guess, uh, skills oriented. You want to be able to have somebody that's very skilled as a bread maker, somebody that's very skilled as a, a pot maker, somebody that's very skilled as a metal worker. And yes? Did you just say that the Egyptians were that? They did the division of labor, like, um, but the Greeks were contributors of that as well. Like, so, yeah. Um, and so there was a lot of crossover because you're all talking about the same part of the world. I mean, Egypt is at the top of Africa, Greeks at the bottom of Europe. Uh, in that sea, you know, Mediterranean Sea. So you're a lot of close proximity in the parts of the world where some of these ideas were catching on in different places. But uh, still, the Greeks contributed as to the divisional labor too and as to specialization, job specialization, where you're, you know, metal workers and things like that. So, so they took a step further. Yeah, right. Then um, standardization was a Roman idea. Uh, standardization where we want to have a certain way that we do things every single time and we want to try to reduce waste. So if we do it this way every single time, we will get the same outputs every single time. We want, if we we're minting coins, we want them all to look the same. We want, If we're making swords, we want them all to be the same. You know, everything is uniform. And if you look at like pictures of Roman history and read about Roman history, you can see consistency in like their look uh, as far as uh, their empire had a very uh, consistent marketing to it, so to speak, where if you had a, a ruling emperor that had a certain a symbol or image, you would see that image across all of the empire, you know, because that was some of that standardization we're talking about where they wanted to have that one brand message, so to speak. Um, the Italians... They got into accounting and corporations and multinational corporations. Um, John Florio um, converted management uh, methods to the English language. And so these are just examples of early contributors. And when it comes to the homework, uh, when you guys start diving into Chapter 3 homework, I only did one assignment for this week. And the reason being, it's, it's one assignment but has multiple aspects to it. You've got 20 individuals or contributors to management history, but in each one of those questions, there's three parts to it. But if you kind of go through the, the book just categorically or go through it um, uh, as it's intended, you'll start seeing these. And it's not, it's not a hard assignment. It's just um, a little labor-intensive, but because I want you to be exposed to that material. All right. Yeah, absolutely. And so... Who's heard about the Industrial Revolution? Okay. Who can tell me about it a little bit? What is the Industrial Revolution? What does that mean? Yes, sir. Uh, they went from like predominantly rural areas to like urbanization. Right. Yeah. That's. Right. You know, like it's it's actually it's interesting to think that. Um, we have to take a step back every once in a while and th because it's easy for us to think that we're modern and we're so sophisticated and we're so much better than people that before us because they were living in the dark ages and living in these ancient times. But truth be told, people 100 years from now, 200 years are going to look at us and think, these people, what was wrong with them? They, were they, were like, they had these things that they stared at for eight hours a day that were called phones. 
And, like, you know, it was just so weird. What a weird time to live, you know. I mean, if you look at the turn of the century, last century, people looked at the Model T and said, that'll never work. What are you talking about? I've got this perfectly good horse and, horse and buggy. Why would you ever need a car? I mean, this is like a toy, you know. Never, you know. And so the things we see now that are in front of us, there's people nowadays looking at self-driving cars thinking, oh, my God, that'll never work. What are you talking about? I've got a perfectly good steering wheel right here. Why would I, why would I want to buy a self-driving car or all these other innovations in technology that are coming, and it comes faster and faster as technology progresses? Eventually, I read a book by a guy named Ray Kurzweil, it was, uh, I read two of his books, but both very good. One of them was uh, called The Soul of a Machine, and the other one is How to Create a Mind. And he talked about once we invent legitimate artificial intelligence, that's the last invention mankind ever needs to make because we can conceptualize an idea and tell it to the computer, and they will create it a thousand-fold better than we can ever think of it. So the machine will create it for us. And so that kind of stuff is coming in the next few decades, and it's really going to be mind-blowing. Yeah, it's really an exciting time to be alive. But uh, when the turn of the Industrial Revolution or when things started happening, it happened really quickly. Um, it was a revolution. Uh, people for hundreds of years have been living on large chunks of land and tended to the farm very much a barter system, even though we had a monetary system. Uh, and I say that because even though we had money, money was scarce. A lot, of, a lot of people didn't have a lot of money. You know, if you were a farmer, you might have a little bit of money, but for the most part, you were self-sufficient. You had land, you had crops, you had livestock, and uh, if you needed something, you traded your services. Like, I'll go fix your barn if you come fix my wheel and my wagon. That, you trade a service, or you say, you know, I've got um, a couple dozen, you know, eggs that I can trade you for a ham or however you want to slice it. And so... Um, once that Industrial Revolution began, though, it was a culture shock to our system because people in mass started leaving these farms and saying there's opportunity for money in the city and there's opportunity to connect and meet other people. Like, farm life was very solitary. Uh, in fact, when we started giving away land to bring people out west, there's actually, a, there's actually documented cases of, uh, I'm sure men went through it too, but of women going through this thing, it was, it was like hysteria, where they had mental breakdowns because they couldn't handle the isolation of, I mean, imagine if you put me in the middle of somewhere where 200 miles, there's nobody, zero. I mean, I would freak out probably. Even though, you know, think about how would you feel? Like, if you're in the middle of somewhere 200 miles, even if you know that I can get on a horse and go for a couple of days and be somewhere, I'd probably feel panicked thinking about it. You know, I, I would like, where's my cell phone? You know, I need to, I need to, because I worry about now, like, if you walk out of the house now without a cell phone, do you freak out a little bit? You think, I'm going to break down, something's going to happen, even though when I first started driving, I didn't have one. So, but once this Industrial Revolution happened, it was a very dynamic shift, and we see this in cycles of business and in creation and in societal change where things will stay the same for a while, and then we go through a dynamic, violent shift of change, and then it'll normalize and go through that way and then we'll go through a violent shift of change, and then it'll, you know, keep, keep uh, kind of plateau and keep going for a while. So the Industrial Revolution was created, or created the conditions necessary for the development of modern management theory. So we have this need for, it's, you know, you've heard necessity is the mother of invention. We have this need for modern management theory because now we've got all these factories, we've got workers, we've got supervisors, but we don't really have 
a manual, so to speak, of how do I do this thing. And it really is still surprising to me now that although we've gotten a lot better, um, we still are struggling to get management right, even today. Because I've said probably in the first few weeks of the class that I believe that probably 80% of managers are, are poor managers or, or need to work on their management skills. And uh, I believe that. I believe that management is something that can be taught, but often the situation that people end up in is that they are the longest tenured person at a company, they get promoted beyond their competence or their security level, they feel insecure in their management, and so now they've got to can be confronted with things they don't feel comfortable with, and they often will lash out in anger or in uh, some type of negative emotion that creates stress on the employees, it creates a hostile or toxic work environment. You end up increasing turnover and losing good people just because you need to train more and learn more. And I've said it early on too, that if you send people home and they feel bad about something you said to them, then you failed as a manager. You know, you need to be able to have a grip on uh, that situation. So in his masterpiece, The Wealth of Nations, Adam Smith proposed the idea of specialization and coordination within corporations as a source of economic growth. Specialization and division of labor were Smith's major contribution to management thought. I know I said earlier that there were earlier contributions. They probably didn't call it specialization and division of labor. They did it in practice, but man, but it wasn't until Smith got a hold of the history and looked at it and then interpreted it as to this is what actually was occurring. They just didn't know it. Um, the division of labor meant that a worker specialized in performing one task that was part of a larger series of tasks at the end of which a product would be produced. The idea of specialization of labor had several important outcomes. Firstly, specialization drastically reduced the cost of goods. Secondly, it drastically reduced the need for training. Instead of learning every aspect of a task, workers needed to learn one portion of it. Then thirdly, the need to coordinate all these different tasks required a greater emphasis on management. Somebody that understood how all the pieces of the puzzle connected together. And that's why the manager is such a crucial piece of uh, the production. Um, imagine the manager as being the conductor of a symphony. Anybody like to go to a symphony? Has anybody ever never been to a symphony? Never been, never been? You should go sometime. Good one to go to is the holiday pops they do here in Goldsboro. The North Carolina Symphony comes in. It's a full production symphony. And they bring, you know, you see the cellos and the big basses and the, the, the full drum kit and everything. And so um, when I was a kid, the, the, the Lundy family in Sampson County paid for the St. Symphony to come. Uh, and it was a free concert to the public. Uh, they held it at the, the Big Baptist Church, the First Baptist in Clinton. I remember going many years as a kid and sitting with my mom and watching them perform. And so as I got to be an adult, I said, I want to take my kids to that. But, of course, it's not free anymore. It's about $40 a ticket. So um, several years ago, I took my kids, and we got a balcony seats, front row. You know, we're watching. I thought this would be a nice treat. The whole time, they're thinking, when can I get out of here? You know, it's okay. It's okay. I tried. But uh, it is a treat to go if you ever, especially around the holidays, they do all Christmas music. But the point being is that when you're watching the symphony, you see this guy called the conductor, and he's doing this little tempo, waving of the wand. And it's really interesting to watch him go because you think, what's this guy really doing? You know, like, I mean, these the musicians are the one playing. Do we really need this guy? Absolutely. Because you can get off track, and the symphony can just become way off, off, off uh, key and off, uh, well, not off key necessarily, but off count, 
and the whole thing can just be a mess. You've got to have that conductor to uh, remind people where they are because he'll look at an individual performer and he'll cue a lead to come in. He'll uh, let people know when it's time to decrescendo or to uh, back off the sound or to pick up the tempo. He'll let them know that. So it's a very important that we have this conductor driving the practice. Same thing with managers. Managers need to be the conductor of the business. You know, when it's time to get busy, that manager needs to be out there popping, like excited, you know, getting people, you know, uh, having a sense of urgency. We're here to move. It's time to go. When I mean, some of the best managers I observe today are in like the restaurant industry, industry where you see they're busy and the manager's right there with them just popping, you know, busting tables, whatever needs to be done, that person's doing it. Um, but when things are down, you still want to encourage people to to get things done, be productive, cleaning and uh, organizing and things like that. But the manager is very much that central person to make sure these things are happening. So the success of scientific management lifted workers into the middle class. Great thing, tremendous for our country. This crucial development has been attributed to one person in particular, Frederick Taylor. So Frederick Taylor was born in 1856 and he died in 1915. So that made him the ripe old age of whatever 15 plus 44 is. What is that? 49, 59 years old? Ugh, not very old. So he is known as the father of scientific management. Once again, Frederick Taylor, father of scientific management. Another one of Taylor's significant contributions to the practice and profession of management was the concept of first-class work. When Taylor developed the notion of first-class work, he did so with the idea that workers should do as much work as they are physically and mentally capable of doing. Those who are not physically and mentally capable of keeping up with production and job demands were sent to different areas of the plant where they could work most effectively. Taylor also developed a task management system that allowed workers to occur more um, efficiently, I'm sorry, work to occur more efficiently and allowed for breaking up of supervisor's work so that he or she could function within a discrete area of activity. So basically, his contributions were um, developing a production schedule where individuals, they had to meet a quota, keep up with uh, production if they couldn't they'd be reassigned. So we're trying to get the most productivity out of an individual that we can. And he also came up with a supervisory management system where we would localize management to particular areas so that they could really ensure that this is getting done. Your job, you might have 40 or 50 employees. Your job is to make sure they're all doing what they're supposed to be doing, they're on time. If they're not, and this was a very tough time to work uh, because safety was not a primary concern. Production was the only concern. They don't care if you get hurt. If you get hurt and injured, you're out, fired, or picking important to the next guy in line, he comes in and starts working. If he can't keep up, he's out. And you got to think that these people left the farm with no money, little to no money. They came to the city to work. So this is really a make or break situation. You know, you you got to sink or swim. And so uh, really, really a tough uh, time to jump into this situation. Comments on any of this so far? All right. Scientific management. Scientific. Yeah. And so, what's that? I laughed if I could. Yeah. And so with scientific management, you, we've already seen uh, the scientific method in here where you form a hypothesis. You know, this is similar to that. So 
Um, the principles for his particular scientific management were this. Say, develop a science for each element of a man's work, which replaces the old rule of thumb method. So they want to know particularly, in particular what each uh, step of a process is. Good to go? Excellent. And if they could identify each step of that process, uh, they could quantify it. And so they should know this is how long it's going to take to do this. And we could say, we can, we can then forecast and say, if we've got 40 people working on a line, each one of them having an expectation they're going to produce, you know, 100, 100 items per hour, you know, which is pretty you know, steep, whatever you're making, that's steep. And so we can then track and, and we can see, well, Billy did 90, you know, Judy did 107. And we can see kind of not only individualize each performance, but we can also see what the aggregate or average is. And we can uh, say, if, we've, if we know what a production is, well, if we're do, doing 100 hour and we're running it 24 hours a day or 20 hours a day, you know, whatever, we can say this is what our production is monthly. Um, and then we can forecast, you know, orders and kind of keep up with it that way. So really a necessary step if you're doing this type of stuff because you don't want to produce something if you don't have a market for it because you're paying all this labor and, and gross materials or raw materials and you have to have somewhere to put that at the end of the day. So if you're producing just a ton of products, and you don't have anywhere to put it. That's the problem. Did I tell you guys a story about Mount Olive Pickle? Anybody yet? Has anybody ever visited Mount Olive Pickle plant or worked there? Um, I'll end on this today because this is a good, um, good story. I got to go visit them at uh, the, with the Rotary Club. I'm not a member of Rotary, but I have a friend that's a Rotarian. And so I went to visit with him just as a, on a whim. And we spent about two hours going through Mount Olive Pickle plants. And I've tried for a year or two now to get a trip set up to go visit Mount Pickle, and I keep hitting walls, so I, I really want to do that, though. That's kind of my goal. My fallback was the interview thing, so, but uh, I really would love to do that because it talks about everything we talk about in this program. It talks about production. It talks about labor. It talks about management. It talks about raw materials. It talks about sales and marketing. The whole, everything is involved with that company. It's a really fascinating company. If you go to Wikipedia sometime and read about it, um, it started with, two guys and the two guys that started it <coughs> found out there was all these coal cucumbers and so they took the coal cucumbers and started making pickles just to sell to make some money and they realized very quickly that they were in hot demand so much so that they had to start buying the top choice cucumbers to actually make pickles but they didn't have the capital to do a full operation so they actually started a company and they had 19 original family investors come together when I say families, I mean individual families, 19 families came together with these two guys, 21 units of, uh, of uh, lending units came together to start this company. And it's still held by that original set of people, by the way. And um, they, they may have changed hands to grandchildren and great-grandchildren, but the families are still in control of the company and they get paid dividends from the performance. <clears throat> Mount Olive is the number two pickle producer in the United States. Very awesome, but uh, and it's right here, right down the road, 20 minutes. Um, but I went to take a tour, and the first thing I saw was these fields where they have containers about half as big as this room. They're, they're, they're cylinders, though, and they have, they're filled up with pickles, or uh, actually filled up with cucumbers, and they pour this really uh, salty brine on top of them. I mean, it's like, it's like seawater times 11, you know, it's really salty. And there's all kinds of debris on top of it, too, but... 
the way they interpret, you know, the way they, they, they say they, they do this is that these, these cucumbers are like you would pick a cucumber in the field. They're still dirty. They're not, they're not ready for prime time yet. Well, then they, after they brine them for an extended period of time, they drain the brine and they come out white. The pickles are now, the cucumbers are now white. You know why? Because they got so much salt in them. That's how much salt they've got in them. But then they wash them and then they soak them a little while to bring some of the saltiness out. And then uh, from there, they jar them or slice them, jar them, however they're going to get sliced. And then they put the pickle juice in there and then they, they package them up and move. But the really fascinating part of the trip was, I didn't know this until I got there. And this will blow your mind if you ever get a chance to witness this. They individually stuff speared pickle jars. Individual people stuff those jars. I had no idea that. that I thought you'd think they'd automate it. Ah, uh-uh. when you hold a jar of pickles, like this is the jar of pickles, you see these very talented, mostly women, <coughs> very talented um, <coughs> production line workers. And what they do, they get the pickles that are, <coughs> they call these fresh packs. They cut them up in spears, and then they, they take them in their hand. They've got the skill to kind of grab them the way they're supposed to be done. And then they put them in there and fan them, and they make sure that the seed side shows out. They don't want the bumpy backside to show on the jar. It has to be the seed side showing out. And so they'll do that. They'll fan it in the whole way. Then they'll stuff some in the center, and then they, they smooth the jar. And they get paid on a they get paid per hour, but they also get paid on a per part. So on the per hour, I don't know what the rate is. probably pretty good. But on the per part, they, they, they are vying for position to see who gets the most jars, and it's only per four or five jars. Every four or five, they count and move a bead across on the counting line. And so there's a there's a manager or supervisor walking around counting their jars and counting the beads. And at, at the end of the day, the next day they come in, there's a printout that shows who was the best jar stuffer and all the way down to the worst jar stuffer. And the best got the most money that day. Yeah, so it's a financial incentive. And the worst obviously didn't get the best financial incentive. But it's doing two things. You're getting the intrinsic reward, and we'll talk about that in a chapter on this, where the intrinsic reward of I did the best job, and they say consistently it's the top two or three people that are doing the best. So you get the financial and the intrinsic rewards of uh, doing this. The financial is the extrinsic reward. Really interesting stuff. But if we ever get a chance to go, I hope we can do it sometime, or I hope you guys get a chance. It's fascinating to watch them do this and how they do it. And the fact that they do it by hand, it's crazy. I do have one tip for you. If you do like Mountain Pickles, you can buy the Great Value brand because it's the same thing. They co-pack Mount Pickles, and it's uh, almost half price. So Mount of Pickles are probably like two thirty a jar, but Great Values are like a dollar twenty-seven, dollar forty. So Great Value is a Mount of Pickle. Just letting you know. All right, guys, I appreciate your attention. We'll wrap this up on Thursday, and I hope I'll have a screen that I can kind of give you a recap on this. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. If you liked it, please subscribe, like, and share. If you're feeling extra generous, please consider leaving an iTunes review. My name is Ryan Bradshaw, and I produce this podcast to help students connect with the material, but also to be able to share the content with the world. My hope is through education, we can make the world a kinder, happier, and better place. Thank you for joining me, and I look forward to our time together in the future. Until then, I wish you well.